Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Wednesday, May 9th, 2018, starting at exactly 8 o'clock p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 157th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be doing a solo show where I talk about which of the 12 houses the signification of sex should be assigned to and how that assignment has changed in different eras over the course of the past 2,000 years of the astrological tradition. So part of the genesis of this episode was actually last fall. I was participating in just a, an astrology forum, and I kind of noticed there was this thread where there was basically some modern astrologer, and he was talking about he was interpreting a chart and he was associating the eighth house with sex, which is a standard association over the course of the past few decades or the course of the past century. And I saw another astrologer came in who was more of a, a medieval or Renaissance astrologer, and he started kind of giving the modern astrologer a hard time, saying that the actual, the true assignment of sex should be to the fifth house, which is more common in some late medieval and especially some Renaissance texts where there was more of a focus on the fifth house for matters pertaining to, to sexuality. Uh, but I, what I thought was interesting is that this medieval astrologer, this proponent of medieval astrology, didn't seem to notice or seemed unaware that even the fifth house emphasis, which became so prominent in the later part of the astrological of traditional astrology by the time of the 17th century, even that was a shift away from the earlier part of the tradition from the Hellenistic tradition where sex actually shows up as a signification of the seventh house. And in point of fact, the only explicit reference to sex being assigned to one of the houses was to the seventh house in the Hellenistic tradition by the second century astrologer Vadius Valens. So this is an interesting uh, thing that came up back then, and I posted about it on like Facebook or Twitter or something, and that generated a pretty lengthy discussion that a, a lot of astrologers commented on because it raises some issues about you know how do we know what the houses mean how did those assignments come about and other sort of tangential issues like overreliance on the supposed authority of tradition where sometimes if you if you try to place all of your authority or your primary authority on tradition sometimes you know, there's going to be an older tradition that might supplant yours, or uh, there might be multiple or competing traditions, so that sometimes just an appeal to authority is not sufficient when it comes to things like this. You know, sometimes it can be, or sometimes that can be useful, but it's not always something that's completely reliable for some reasons that we'll get into later. So, this is part of a broader topic about just the different significations of the houses and how those have changed over the course of the past 2,000 years. Because although there's some significations that have stayed relatively constant, there's other significations that have moved around to different houses. And the assignment of sex to the different houses is actually a great case study because it's one that has changed so radically depending on what tradition you're talking about when it comes to Western astrology. So, studying the, the different assignments of sex to the houses is actually provides us with a good access point for understanding how the houses were conceptualized in different eras, how the significations were originally generated in each of those eras, uh, 
and then what some of the underlying conceptual structures are that were motivating the generation of those assignments. So you can actually see how and why they were developing certain significations by looking at and sort of thinking through or investigating uh, why the tradition is assigning sex to different houses in different eras. So what I'm going to do during the course of this episode is kind of trace the changing views on this topic over the years, going back to the earliest strata of the tradition and what we can tell about it from textual sources primarily, and then moving forward through the medieval period, through the Renaissance, and then eventually to the modern era. And we're going to focus on the topic of sex, but again, this is because it actually provides an interesting access point for understanding the conceptual structure and the, the underlying motivation for the significations of all of the houses. So if you if you follow one of the major ones that has changed in different eras, you can kind of get a sense for what conceptual structures are motivating all of the different significations of the 12 houses, and it becomes useful in a broader sense in that way or for that reason. So this discussion is partially based on my own research uh, in terms of looking into the topic myself, in terms of studying the Hellenistic and medieval, a little bit of the Renaissance tradition, and then of course the modern tradition. Uh, the discussion is also par partially based on some research that Demetra George did, because she, a few years ago, did a serious research project where she went through and studied all of the major texts of the astrological tradition over the past 2,000 years and compiled tables where she would just list like what significations each author gives for different houses. And after she did that, she did a series of webinars where she um, basically went through and presented the significations of each house so she did one webinar or one seminar for each house and gave sort of an overview of how the entire tradition conceptualized each of those houses at different points and some of the ways in which it changed in different eras. But then she also tried to synthesize some of those meanings together to give astrologers kind of like a working understanding of how, at least for her, she's reconciled some of the different approaches and sort of presented a working model for how each of the houses can be conceptualized today. So originally, we were going to record this discussion together about this topic, but we actually ran into a, a technical issue earlier today that prevented us from being able to do the recording. So I'm going to go ahead and do a solo show here, and uh, I'm going to draw a, a little bit on some of the notes and some of the research that she had, but since our views do not completely coincide on some topics and we have some disagreements on certain areas, I'll largely just be speaking for myself here. Although I'll mention a few instances where Demetra had had some interesting points that, sh that she would have made at various points during this discussion. So I do want to mention at the start that Demetra is actually doing, I'm, I'm excited actually, that Demetra is actually doing a full retreat later this year in September on the original Hellenistic significations of the houses. So she's basically going to do a full intensive, a several day intensive in Portland, Oregon from September 27th through October 1st of 2018, where she's going to go through and really delve deep into the underlying significations of each of the 12 houses and basically do a full intensive on that topic, um, specifically focusing on the Hellenistic tradition and the original set of significations or meanings for each of the 12 houses in order to give astrologers a better, better background and better understanding about the original 
conceptual principles underlying the houses, and therefore a better sort of approach for actually understanding what the houses mean and applying those meanings in practice. So I'd recommend that people, if, if you're curious about the houses, if you want to go deeper in that topic, I'd recommend checking out uh, that retreat. You can find out more information about it on her website at demetra-george.com. So let's jump into it with some, some preliminary statements about the origins of the houses first. So the concept of the 12 houses didn't always exist in the astrological tradition. So we're going to go way far back now. So let's go back, let's say 3,000 years. So most of what we know of as Western astrology that consists of the the, the fourfold system that consists of astrological charts that contain the planets, the 12 signs of the zodiac, the concept of aspects, and then the concept of the 12 houses. So most of that system didn't really fully develop until around the first century BCE, so roughly about 2,000 years ago. And the concept of the 12 houses in particular seems to have really come about at that point. So that's basically the first century BCE is the time frame when the first texts that have survived that we know of exist, which have references to the 12 houses and their significations, and many of the significations that became standard over the course of the next 2,000 years, or from our vantage point, the past 2,000 years. So those texts don't don't show up in the astrological tradition from our vantage point until about the first century BCE. So by that point, the concept of the 12 houses had been developed, but prior to that time, it may not have existed as a concept or as a technique, at least not in a way that we necessarily know it as we know it today. So that's the first step, is just understanding, even though we have a lot of astrological techniques that we take for granted and we know have been around for hundreds of years or thousands of years, just about all of these techniques are things that were developed or introduced or invented at some point in time. So at some point in time, if we're using a concept or a technique in astrology, somebody has to have first developed it or observed it or invented it in some way. And the houses the concept of the 12 houses is one of those things. It's basically a technique or a concept that was introduced at some point in time. So we can trace pretty well the origins of the concept or what would have led to its development in the two earlier Western astrological traditions that were that acted as precursors to what we know of as Western astrology. So one of them is the Mesopotamian tradition, which is the type of astrology that developed in Mesopotamia, which is what is now roughly coincides with modern-day Iraq. So there, the Mesopotamians, by about 2000 BCE or maybe 1500 BCE, they um, were making observations about different planetary alignments and basically movements in the sky, and then they were recording correlations of what those uh, celestial movements correlated with on Earth. So we have the beginnings of Western astrology or of mundane astrology. So eventually the Mesopotamians developed the 12 sign zodiac by the 5th century BCE. They standardized it to be 12 signs of exactly 30 degrees each. 
Additionally, the Mesopotamians were also developing complex mathematical schemes for being able to track planetary movements and to be able to predict where the planets were far into the future as well as far into the past. So the Mesopotamians were very much folk. We know that the Mesopotamians were very much focused on the zodiac and the movement of the planets. So over their their sort of next door neighbors, a little bit away from Mesopotamia, was Egypt. And over in Egypt, they were also developing an astrological tradition since around 2000 BCE or so that focused on the 36 deacons or decans which uh, in the Egyptian tradition were specific fixed stars or specific clusters of fixed stars, which are called asterisms. And they were using these fixed stars evidently in order to do things like time religious rituals. And the two ways that we know uh, during different points in their tradition that they used the decans, they used them to tell time, especially at night, for these religious rituals and for other things. And one of the ways that they would do that is by determining when a Deccan was rising over the eastern horizon or culminating overhead. So they were basically focused on what we know of or what we refer to as the diurnal rotation, which is the daily rotation where like the sun and the rest of the planets and stars will all rise over the eastern horizon in the morning over by what we know of as the ascendant. They'll eventually culminate overhead. Um, you know, near or or sort of loosely associated with what we might refer to as the midheaven, and then eventually they will the sun and the other planets and stars will eventually set. Uh, the sun sets in the evening each day. Then eventually it anticulminates around midnight, and then eventually the sun rises again each morning. So that's the diurnal rotation, and that's basically the the precursor in some sense to uh, it's the basic foundation of what we associate with the houses, because the houses are also focused on that diurnal rotation of rising, culminating, setting, and anti-culminating. But in the Egyptian tradition, they hadn't necessarily developed any advanced concept of like 12 houses, or they hadn't necessarily ascribed significations or developed significations for them. But instead, they may have only been focused on this idea of certain fixed stars rising over the eastern horizon and culminating overhead and something important happening at that point when those stars were doing that, and specifically being able to do things like tell time or time religious rituals based on which, which stars were rising or culminating. So to make a long story short, what ended up happening is that the confluence of these two traditions, because what happened is that in the 4th century BCE, Alexander the Great conquered both Mesopotamia and Egypt. So suddenly those two areas that were developing those two approaches to astrology were suddenly under the control of Greek-speaking rulers, and it encouraged and allowed for a greater sort of degree of trade and commerce and exchange between those two areas all of a sudden over the course of the next few centuries. So what happened is we have a, a sort of confluence or a coming together of the of the Egyptian and the Mesopotamian tradition, and this eventually led to the development of what we call horoscopic astrology. And basically what happens is when you blend the idea of the 12-sign zodiac from Mesopotamia 
with the Egyptian idea of focusing on certain fixed stars that are rising over the eastern horizon or culminating overhead, you basically end up with the concept of the houses because at that point they probably developed the concept of whole sign houses or somebody developed the concept of whole sign houses where all you have to do is figure out which sign is rising over the eastern horizon and then you say that that sign becomes the first house or the first sector the first region of the chart for something and then every sign of the zodiac that follows after that in zodiacal order becomes the next house or the next region or sector of the chart and then all of a sudden you you end up with 12 regions or 12 houses so that's you know probably how we ended up with 12 houses in the first place rather than some other number like 24 or 36 or 48 or what have you it's there's 12 12 houses because there were originally 12 signs of the zodiac and because they were using whole sign houses early on the houses and signs were seen to be sort of equivalent in in some way so we get this this idea of the 12 houses that are connected to using whole sign houses the 12 signs of the zodiac but not all of the significations were necessarily introduced at once but instead what we see in the very earliest part of the hellenistic tradition is we see that there was like a few different or a few separate astrological texts that were introduced or written by somebody by different figures that are kind of mysterious early on that wrote sort of proposals about what they thought the significations of each of these 12 sectors should be so there was one text that was attributed to Hermes Trismegistus and that seems to have introduced the original set or what I argue in my book uh, Hellenistic Astrology the Study of Fate and Fortune what I argue is that the the Hermes text from probably about the 1st century BCE introduced the original set of significations for the for the 12 houses then there was a later text that was attributed to an author named Asclepius and that seems to have introduced a sort of a modified version of the the significations of the first eight houses where he retained some of the significations that Hermes had developed for the houses like Hermes said that marriage should be assigned to the seventh and Asclepius followed him and agreed and said marriage should be assigned to the seventh however the Hermes text said that death should be assigned to the seventh as well whereas the Asclepius text moved death to the eighth house so the Asclepius text partially represented a, a revision or a sort of challenge to some of the significations that the Hermes text gave to the houses, and later authors tended to try to reconcile or to try to merge those two traditions and eventually created a hybrid one uh, over the next few centuries that became the dominant model for the significations of the houses that we largely still use to this day. All right, so that is my that's sort of like my preliminary statements about the the quick and dirty sort of history early history of house division basically and you can actually go back to some previous episodes of the astrology podcast like for example in episode 17 i talked a bit about this in the episode on the rationale for the significations of the houses i focused there a little bit more on the planetary on the planetary joys and especially the third house. So here we're going to end up focusing on the seventh, eighth, and fifth houses. In that podcast, I, I sort of covered some similar things, but I focused more on 
the third house. And that was during the point where I was doing a lot of this research for uh, a series of lectures that I was making for my Hellenistic astrology course and kind of doing some of the same research that Demetra did in order to try to reconstruct and understand what the meanings of the houses originally were and where they came from. And one of the ones I was still struggling with a little bit at that point was the third house. So anyway, that's a good other reference issue, uh, reference episode to go back and listen to, though, uh, episode 17, if you want to learn more about this topic. Uh, there's also another good one for talking about the, the Hermes text and the Asclepius text, because at one point when I was writing my book, when I was working on the chapter uh, a couple of years ago, I guess in 2016, where I was writing little biographies for each of the Hellenistic astrologers, I decided to record an episode that just talked about the lives and works of all of the Hellenistic astrologers. And that ended up being, I think, like a three or four hour episode or something crazy like that. But if you'd like to hear more about some statements about those early texts, like the Hermes text and the Asclepius text, and get greater historical context for the sequence of some of those early authors, then I definitely recommend checking out that episode. So that's episode number 62 of the Astrology Podcast. All right, so let's move on then to our, with those preliminaries out of the way, let's move on to our main topic. And our main topic is the original assignment of sex to the seventh house, evidently in the Hellenistic tradition. So one of the points that Demetra was going to make here that was a good point right at the start is that she notes that sex was actually primarily associated with the planets, specifically and or especially the planets Venus and Mars. And there was not as much discussion about the topic of sex in terms of the houses in the Hellenistic tradition just in general, but instead they seem to focus in most of the discussions about sex, sex and sexuality and even sexual orientation, which is another episode that I did uh, with Christopher Renstrom at, at one point. Okay, that was episode 79, titled Sexual Orientation and Astrology, where, where Christopher Renstrom and I talked a little bit about that in the astrological tradition and how Ptolemy discusses the topic in the second century. So one of the things Demetra points out is just that most of these discussions about sex and sexuality and sexual orientation tend to focus on the planets, not so much dis discussion in terms of the houses. However, the topic of marriage and the marriage partner, which often it's often presented from the perspective of of males because we're talking about Greco-Roman society and most of the astrological texts that survive, all the astrological texts from that period were written by males and were by male astrologers. So it's always couched in terms of marriage and the marriage partner or specifically the wife. And that topic was always assigned to the seventh house from very early on. So I already mentioned earlier that as early as the Hermes text, which is really the earliest text that we know of that deals with the significations of the 12 houses, uh, the topic of marriage is already assigned to the seventh house. Uh, and this is also true, or this gets repeated in the Asclepius text as well, where it assigns the marriage partner to the seventh house. And therefore, it sort of becomes this unanimous thing that all later astrologers followed that as well. And this makes some good sense from a symbolic standpoint because one of the things you have to understand about the houses is there's this big focus on the first house, seventh house dynamic, and that 
one of the the things that's clear is that the four angular houses play a really foundational role that many of the significations of the rest of the houses are are derived from in some way. And part of the reason for that is that the four angular houses are unique because they have their own independent astronomical meaning and astronomical they sort of stand out astronomically in a unique and readily identifiable way that makes them easy to draw symbolism from basically so what i mean by that is the first house in the hellenistic tradition became the house that was most closely associated with the native or the person that was born at that moment in time uh, whose birth chart that you're looking at, since the birth chart is always cast for the exact moment that an individual was born. And the reason for that is because the first house and the ascendant is the region of the sky or the, the, the sector of the chart, let's say, where the planets will rise over the horizon, where the sun rises over the eastern horizon every day, and the other planets will rise over the horizon at some point, and they will sort of emerge into view suddenly. So if you're standing outside at any point during the day on Earth, and you look to the eastern horizon, at some point you're going to see some of the stars or some of the planets or one of the two luminaries basically emerge over the eastern horizon at some point. And in that way, it looks like the planets are sort of symbolically being born or are emerging at that time. So the the ascendant or the rising sign is the spot where things, where planets basically emerge. And as a result of that, it became symbolically the part of the chart that was most closely associated with the individual who was born at that point in time, whose birth chart you're looking at, which is to say the native or, or the individual who owns the birth chart. So the first house gets associated with the individual, or you could say the self in some sense. And in a modern context, it often comes to mean the self. Whereas the seventh house is the part of the sky by the western horizon where the planets set and where the sun sets each day in the evening. And the rest of the planets also set and they go from sort of being visible in the, the sky to actually sinking underneath the earth. So the first house becomes associated with the self and the sense of emergence, and the first house does, and the seventh house becomes associated with the other, and this sort of concept of sort of submergence and planets going into hiding at that point and disappearing. So it sets up this basic dynamic of basically first house being the self and the seventh house being the other. So as a result of that, I think that's that's basically the the primary underlying foundational principle for the assignment of the the native to the first house or the self to the first house and the marriage partner to the seventh house. So it also comes up in other ways it doesn't in other areas of astrology the seventh house also becomes kind of like the default other. This is very clear in electional astrology for example in some of the earliest electional texts the first house is always associated with the one who initiates the action, and the seventh house is always associated with the one who's receiving the action. So, for example, the buyer, sometimes in like electional rules for buying and selling, 
the buyer is typically assigned to the first house and the seller is assigned to the seventh house. So there's this general sort of symbolic concept of first house is self, seventh house is other because of that sort of core astrological idea of sort of uh, rising versus setting or emergence versus submergence. So we know that the seventh house is associated with marriage and with the marriage partner. And at one point, the second century astrologer Vadius Valens, when he's sort of listing off a quick set of significations for each of the houses at one point, I think it's in one of the early chapters, like chapter 10 maybe of book four of the anthology, one of the significations he gives for the seventh house is, he says, intercourse with a woman. So he actually uses a sort of euphemism because the word that I'm translating there is intercourse. It actually means intertwining or something something like that, but it basically means or would perhaps be the equivalent of our term intercourse. So he uses sort of what is kind of a euphemism for the word for the concept of sex. And one of the questions you may have, well, maybe is that maybe he's just referring to marriage and using that like union, because the other way you could translate it, and I think some translators have translated it that way, is uh you could translate the phrase as uh union with a woman. But the thing is, is that in the same sentence, he mentions marriage as a separate signification. So he wouldn't have repeated himself twice and said marriage and marriage with a woman. He's basically saying marriage is one of the significations, and additionally, one of the other significations is intertwining or or intercourse. So this is an important point because it's one of the few, it's actually the only, as far as I'm aware, explicit references to assigning a specific uh, house in the Hellenistic tradition to the concept of sex, and Valens seems to be assigning it to the seventh house. So part of this, one, one of my speculations is that I think that this may partially derive from an earlier uh, tradition that was happening somewhere earlier, either during the very early phases of or perhaps slightly prior to the early Hellenistic tradition, where it seems like they were assigning everything to one of the four angles, and that they may have had there may have been an approach to astrology during this time period, perhaps even prior to the Hermes text is is what I suspect, where they hadn't developed the full-fledged concept of the 12 houses yet or the concept of whole sign houses, but they may have developed the concept of just the four angles of these just general regions of the sky where the planets are rising over the eastern horizon or culminating overhead or setting or anti-culminating. So those are roughly associated with what we would associate with the ascendant midheaven uh, the descendant and the IC. So you can see evidence of this, or part of my argument is that I you, I think you can actually make an argument for this, or you can see evidence for it when you look at the electional tradition, the early electional tradition and the Hellenistic tradition in authors such as Dorotheus of Sidon from the first century CE and Hephaestu of Thebes, who basically repeats and preserves a bunch of Dorotheus's rules for different types of elections 
when he wrote his text in the like 5th century CE, I believe. So I actually interviewed Ben about that book a few years ago. I guess it was actually one of the early episodes that I did. Yeah, one of the, one of the early episodes was interviewing Ben Dykes on that new translation of Book Three of Hephaestus of Thebes, because that's the specific one that covers all the electional rules. And what's interesting about that text is that it has like twenty or thirty or forty different chapters on different instructions that it's giving you for how to pick an auspicious electional chart for different uh, topics or different ventures, or how to interpret an electional chart that has already taken place and to determine what the outcome of that venture will be if you know the time that it was initiated, uh, depending on what topic you want to study. So what's really interesting, if you read through that entire book, Book 3 of Hephaestio or Book 5 of Dorotheus, because Book 3 of Hephaestio is basically derived from Book four, book 5 of Dorotheus, if you read all of the instructions, you see this recurring pattern where they're pretty much just exclusively presenting rules that focus on the four angles, and they're pretty much not talking about any of the other houses hardly at all. So occasionally they might talk about, they might throw in some other stray reference to one of the other houses, but it's really striking how almost exclusively all of the rules, all the electional rules have evidently originally derived from Dorotheus, and Dorotheus himself says that he's collecting them from earlier authors from the Mesopotamian and Egyptian astrological tradition, virtually all of the rules only focus on the four angles or the four angular houses, ascendant, midheaven, descendant, and IC. So I think the reason for this, or one of my speculations, is that it comes from a part of the tradition that many of these electional rules may come from a part of the tradition before all of the 12 houses were worked out, where you have to just imagine you're working with a type of astrology that only has the ascendant, the midheaven, the descendant, and the IC, and it, it doesn't otherwise divide the space in between those angles into different sectors, but instead it just sort of generally focuses on these four regions around the rising, culminating, setting, and anti-culminating sectors of the sky. So that's interesting to me because it also might explain some other stray rules that show up later in the Hellenistic tradition where, for example, while children did come to be assigned to the fifth house and some authors, there was some disagreement about this in the early tradition because some authors assigned children to the tenth house. So they said, if you want to look at a natal chart, you look at the tenth house of the native and that'll tell you things about the native's children and whether that will will go well for them or not. So Ptolemy, for example, says that you should look at both the fifth house as well as the tenth house for the topic of children. So he uses both. And I think part of that focus on the tenth house there, for, for example, for that topic may derive from this time period from earlier where they may have just had a, a tradition where yeah, where basically they were just using the four angles for a period of time. And then eventually later on, the Hermes text and the Asclepius text introduced the concept of breaking up the entire diurnal rotation into 12 sectors 
And then they introduced the first sort of uh, standard set of significations for those 12 houses, which were later synthesized and become became sort of standardized over the course of the next few centuries in the astrological tradition. So part of this in terms of the signification of children to the 10th is that I think you can partially, you can't fully validate that argument, but I think you can partially validate it by looking at the electional rules in Hephaestu and Dorotheus for marriage elections. So for marriage elections, they say the first house represents the husband in an electional chart for, for the start of a marriage. The first house represents the husband, the one initiating the action, basically. The seventh house represents the wife, the one receiving the action. The tenth house represents their life together, once married. And the fourth house represents the dowry. So that general concept that's a little bit ambiguous in Hephaestio and Dorotheus, where it just says the life together or what they do together, because basically part of the conceptual premise of all of the electional rules in Dorotheus and Hephaestio at this early stage of the electional tradition is that the first house represents the one who initiates the action, the seventh house represents the one who receives the action, the tenth house represents the action itself, and the fourth house represents the outcome. So that's basically the, the earliest set of meanings for the four angles, and that basic conceptual structure then gets applied to pretty much every topic you can think of in the electional books of Dorotheus and Hephaestio. Yeah, so part of this is that I think that Valens may be, I think on the one hand that we're dealing with a tradition where marriage and the marriage partner is associated with the seventh house, and therefore it sort of makes sense on some level that they would also then associate sex with that house because sex is presumed to be taking place within the context of the marriage. But more than that, even just symbolically, there may be a, a good symbolic reason for it where to the extent that the first house is associated with the native because it represents or symbolically the planets rise over the horizon and emerge into view at that point, the seventh house represents, from an astronomical standpoint, again, remember the planets setting and sinking into the earth or, or merging or sort of forming a sort of union, you could say, with the earth and um, literally like moving down into it. So that might be the other reason why somebody like Valens could have ended up associating sex with the seventh house, because from an astronomical standpoint, if you were to try to pick one of the houses, especially if you had to focus on one of the four angular houses, the seventh is the one that might make the most symbolic sense because of this notion of astronomically of something uh, sort of coming together of the planet's moving into the earth versus the first house and the idea of the planets moving away from it and sort of emerging from the earth and moving into the sky. So that's sort of part of the way that I've tried to understand that assignment in balance of sex to the seventh house. Demetra also noted in her notes that marriage oftentimes during this time period was more of a contractual relationship agreement rather than necessarily being a, a love match. And that sexual consummation actually sealed the deal at that point so that if there was no consummation of the marriage, then the marriage could be legally annulled. So there's this whole other like 
legal or, or or legalistic component to sex and sexuality as it's tied up in marriage in the Mediterranean and in the Greco-Roman world in ancient times like 2000 years ago that has to be taken into account. So I think that makes sense then because then in some ways the signification is culturally relative and you could make the argument that it's partially culturally relative to the culture of its day and you could see the astrology as not a byproduct but as reflecting the culture of its day to some extent because most astrological traditions often do although not entirely that's not usually always the primary thing that motivates astrological significations but sometimes it's a sort of secondary consideration and we'll come back to that later but on the one hand there may have been cultural reasons for assigning sex to the 7th house at that time period that made sense but also I still want to emphasize that there may have been good symbolic reasons for it just in that notion of the planet setting and sort of forming a union or moving together into the earth and then symbolically them associating not just marriage with it but also sex with it as well and just this general notion of like union or coming together all right so that is the 7th house and the hellenistic tradition so at this point now we move on to the topic of the 5th house and what happened during the later part of the hellenistic tradition and the the, the medieval tradition and the renaissance tradition where sex eventually came to be associated with the fifth house. So in order to talk about this, we first have to take a little detour to the fifth house and the topic of children. So the uh, remember going back to those very first two texts that I talk, talked about, which seem to have introduced some of the earliest, if not the original sets of significations for the 12 houses, the Hermes text and the Asclepius text, the Hermes text does not say anything about the topic of children in terms of the fifth house. Uh, however, the Asclepius text does. The Asclepius text actually does mention the topic of children and it assigns that topic to the fifth house, basically. Now, it was probably the original text to make this association, and that's probably because there was probably a previous tradition of assigning children basically to the 10th house for the reasons that I mentioned mentioned above. So I'm just trying to pull up my text really quickly to remind myself if yeah, in, in the Hermes text, it's the Hermes text where Hermes actually assigns children to the 10th house. So again, we've got one of those conflicts where like the earliest or the original author and the who wrote the Hermes text whoever that was the guy that used the name Hermes to write that text assigned children to the 10th house but then there was this other later text that came along at some point probably not too far after the Hermes text but far enough that it was clearly a separate text that was written by a separate person and this text assigned the topic of children to the 5th house and what happened in later authors is that even though you have some authors like Ptolemy who mention both the 10th house and the 5th house as houses that you have to pay attention to for the topic of children, as the tradition went on, more and more 
children got pushed more to the fifth house, and later authors tended to prefer the fifth house for talking about the topic of children, and eventually kind of forgot about uh, the original Hermes assignment of assigning children to the tenth. So that's kind of a common theme where we see we've seen that already elsewhere. Where, for example, I mentioned how the Hermes text assigned death to the seventh house, but the Asclepius text assigned death to the eighth house, and how eventually, during the course of the tradition, astrologers tended to prefer and tended to side with the Hermes variant or, or the Asclepius variant, and then eventually, you know, death became almost entirely associated with the eighth house. Rather than the seventh, so the same kind of happened here with with the signification of children, and one of the questions, you know, that that remains is why did the Asclepius text decide to assign the topic of children to the fifth house uh, rather than the tenth house that the Hermes text apparently assigned it to? And my speculation for this is I think it's actually connected with. This conceptual structure known as the angular triads, which is basically the conceptual notion that's underlying the the modern concepts of angular, succedent, and cadent houses. And the original conceptual premise under underlying angular, cadent, and succedent is that you have the angle the four angular houses or the four angles represent that which is present. Uh, in the moment, at the present moment in time, that which is happening right now. So, if you looked at it from like a, let's say, a chronological standpoint, it represents the present. Whereas the succeeding houses represent the succeeding houses. When a planet is in a succeeding house, it's actually moving up towards an angular house. So, the succeeding houses were usually associated with things that are developing in the future. Things that are are coming into being, basically, but they're not quite there yet. And this was contrasted then with the cadent houses, which were known as declining houses, because the cadent houses, when a planet is in a cadent house, that means that it was recently about an hour or two prior to that time, it was at an angular house, but now it's moved away from the angular house and it's moving. Further and further away from that angular house over time, the longer, the longer you pay attention to it, basically. So as a result of that, the cadent houses chronologically, or from a temporal standpoint, were associated with the past or things that are moving into the past because planets and cadent houses were at the angles a couple of hours ago, but are no longer there, and instead are moving away from them. So, again, like chronologically or temporally, the or- the sequence then is that cadent houses represent the past, angular houses represent the present, and succeeding houses represent the future or things that are still developing in the future. So, one of the significations that Hermes established that Asclepius sort of retained is the idea of. The fourth house being associated with one's father, and potentially the the sort of parents or the parental unit in general, or the idea of like the home and family and origins, and that's a pretty easy symbolic association to make because if 
the first house where the planets emerge and rise over the horizon represents you, the the native, the person who's born at that point in time. Then the fourth house is the the place that's hidden underneath the earth um, at the very bottom of the chart in the part of the, you know, it's not up there in the sky. So the, the midheaven is the middle of the sky from your vantage point here standing on earth or where you were born. And that's where the planets reach their highest point or they become the most visible. And so therefore the the 10th house in the midheaven became associated with one's reputation and one's social standing and one's career or, or occupation eventually. Uh, opposite to that is the fourth house where the planets are at their most hidden and their most sort of invisible. So the 10th house becomes associated with the public life and the fourth house becomes associated with the private life. But because it's at the very bottom of the chart under the earth, it also starts gaining these other meanings of like the foundation, the roots or the foundation of the person's life. And you know, symbolically speaking, the roots and the foundation of a person's life pretty easily, or one of the, the foundations of a person's life is one's family lineage or one's family in general. So pretty early on, the Hermes text is already talking about the significations of the fourth house and associating it with paternal possessions. So it's already talking about like the paternal inheritance. And the Asclepius text basically retains that and takes it a little bit further and says that the fourth house is associated with the parents. So it's, it's taking something that's already kind of in the, in the Hermes text and it's just taking it one step further and just stating explicitly that the fourth house represents the parents. So what's interesting about that is that the fifth house is the succeedant house. So everybody knows that the fifth house is a succeedant house, whereas the fourth house is an angular house. But what that actually means in concrete symbolic terms, uh, that kind of actually sounds like a funny contradiction, concrete symbolic terms. But what that means in symbolic terms is that the fifth house is the house that follows after the fourth, and therefore the fifth house represents that which follows after or that which is a continuation of that which happened already in the fourth house. So one of the speculations that I've made, and I feel pretty, I feel pretty confident about this, is that what the author of the Asclepius text was going for there is the idea that if the fourth house represents the parents and that's already established, then the fifth house has to represent the continuation of the family lineage in some sense, since the fifth house is the succeedant house that follows after the fourth and therefore symbolically represents the future of the fourth in some broader sense. And if the fourth represents your, your parents and your sort of family lineage, then the continuation of that is basically you having children, you the native being the first house. Which interestingly, if you think about this, this is a discussion I was having with a student or, or a person who took my Hellenistic course at one point last year and has done some really brilliant work on the houses, Theodore, or Theodore, and he pointed out to me that if you think about the fourth house, the fourth house is the parents, and if you think about what the fourth is in terms of derived or derivative houses, 
the first house, which is the house of you, the native or the self, is the tenth house relative to the fourth house. So using that sort of previous tradition where the Hermes text was assigning children to the tenth house, partially because that's, you know, for some people your job or that's what you do. It's one of your accomplishments in life is having children and, you know, producing offspring or what have you. It's interesting then in the derivative houses scheme that, uh, yeah, just if the first house is the native, that is actually the the 10th house relative to the fourth house of parents. So there's this inter, interesting interchange and, and inter, interconnection there, which could also be relevant in terms of how the Asclepius text ended up decide, deciding that parents should be associated with the fourth house in the first place. Yeah, so going back, just the notion then is that the Asclepius text also assigned children to the fifth house, and very quickly in the astrological tradition, many authors started following that. The fifth house also has some other conceptual structures underlying it. So one of the other things that they took into account for developing the meanings of the houses is the aspect that that the house has to the ascendant or the, the rising sign. Because any of the houses that have an aspect to the rising sign using the major aspects of conjunction, sextile, uh, square, trine, and opposition, any of the houses that aspect the rising sign were conceptualized as positive or signifying positive things in the native's life, whereas any of the houses that did not aspect the rising sign were conceptualized as negative or sometimes indicating negative things in the person's life. So it's a contrast between you know, the third house representing siblings, the fourth parents, the fifth children, the seventh marriage and relationships, the ninth travel, the tenth occupation, the eleventh friends, versus the sixth house illness, eighth house death, and the twelfth house laws. So the fifth house is actually one of the more positive houses because it has a, not just an aspect, but a positive aspect to the ascendant, which is a trine. Additionally, the fifth house was known as the place of good fortune, and using an ancient scheme where the Hellenistic authors associated one of the seven traditional planets with each with one of the houses, uh, seven planets with seven houses, uh, they actually assigned Venus to the fifth house. And the fifth house was said to be the house associated with Venus. So that becomes tied in also potentially with the fifth house assignment of children, uh, yeah, the assignment of children to the fifth house. So what ended up happening though is that this planetary joys scheme where the planets were assigned to the houses, and, and I, maybe, maybe I should list it really quickly for those that aren't familiar with it. So it's Venus is assigned to the fifth house. Jupiter is assigned to the 11th house, Mars is assigned to the 6th house, Saturn to the 12th, the Sun to the 9th, the Moon to the 3rd, and Mercury to the 1st. So that's known as the planetary joys scheme. And if you do a, like a Google search for that, um, like the planetary joys in astrology, you'll see a, you'll find a paper that I wrote on the planetary joys that gives a, a diagram and talks about the origins of the scheme and some other things like that and how it actually probably played an important conceptual role in motivating some of the significations of the houses. So 
What happened is that as the tradition progressed, especially later in the Hellenistic tradition, some later authors realized that the planetary joys scheme, where there were some planets that were assigned to certain houses, how that seemed to be used to generate some significations, some later authors started using that to generate new significations or or to take some of the significations even further based on those assignments. So as a result of this, what happens is that Venus's joy in the fifth house became a source for additional significations. And this this created a sort of abstract conceptual structure that some of the significations were derived from. So this is an important development and an important departure on some level because remember, so previously when we were just talking about, let's say in astrology where you only have the four angles, then you pretty much just have to develop the significations for those four angles or let's say those four angular houses just almost purely based on the astronomical appearance of those four angles. So you know, the first house, because the planets and the sun emerge there, that's going to represent the the native who is born at that moment in time. And since the seventh house is where the planets sink into the earth, that's going to represent the other or the marriage partner. And since the, the midheaven or the tenth house is the highest and most visible part of the sky, that's going to represent the native's career. And since the IC represents the hidden and most private part of the sky that's going to represent the native's private life, like their home or parents or what have you. So all of those significations for just the four angles are developed based on basically interpreting the symbolism of the astronomical appearance of those sectors of the sky. However, once you introduce the planetary joys scheme, this becomes like a, a new abstract sort of conceptual rationale for generating significations for some of the houses. So it doesn't work for generating significations for all of the houses because there were there were only seven visible planets traditionally. There were seven traditional planets, and there was one planet assigned to one house each. So it means that it was just for the houses that had planetary joys, where sometimes significations started being added to those houses based on those uh, assignments. So that's the first house in Mercury, the third house in the Moon, the fifth house in Venus, the sixth house and Mars, the ninth house in the Sun, the eleventh house in Jupiter, and the twelfth house and Saturn. So what starts happening is that later in the tradition, because in the later part of the Hellenistic and especially the medieval tradition, is that because Venus was associated with, as a planet, was associated with things like joy and pleasure, those Venusian significations started being applied to the fifth house, since the fifth house is the joy of Venus. So Demeter points out here that Venus, from a mythological standpoint, was the goddess of love, and that in texts that in, in astrological texts from the Hellenistic period that just talk about the significations of Venus, they say that it signifies things like desire and yearning and eroticism, sexual union and pregnancy and fertility. So one of her arguments, and, and this is a point where it's like I don't fully disagree, but we have 
we, we run into trouble because we get into a point where we don't have a lot of evidence textually and we have an issue about sometimes when you're studying the ancient astrological traditions or you're studying the astrological tradition in general sometimes there's a question about when you can make an inference about something reliably versus when you have to have when the astrologer has to have like written it out before you can actually say that they did or thought that specific thing so demetrio's argument is that if venus is a planet basically that's most associated with sexuality and fertility and the fifth house is the house where she uh, most delights to be in by having her planetary joy there then demetra argues that there may have been an implied connection there so basically she thinks that in the hellenistic tradition they may have already had an implicit implicit association of sex with the fifth house just because of the connection with venus so that's part of the issue but the problem is is that the only author who explicitly mentions sex in the hellenistic tradition so for like the first several hundred years of the western astrological tradition when authors start using or start applying the significations to the 12 houses after the concepts introduced the only author that we we know of who mentions it is valens and he applies sex to the 7th house in that one reference so there's a little bit of ambiguity here the seventh house actually did continue, and I was uh, a um, scholar of medieval astrology pointed out to me that some early medieval authors also continued to associate sex with the seventh house. So to me, that reinforces that this was it wasn't just like a one-off association in Valens, and Valens wasn't the only one who did it, but that there was some general general tradition of associating sex with the seventh house. However, there did start to be, by the time of the medieval tradition, especially by like the eighth and ninth century forward, in the authors who were writing in Arabic in the Middle East at that time period, who had inherited the Western tradition and then continued to develop and, and sort of expand it, that in the medieval Arabic authors, we start seeing this push towards potentially associating sex with the fifth house. So Demetra actually has traced this whole lineage through the Persian and Arabic authors by looking at the terms that they were using. Uh, and she makes this interesting argument. This is in, I believe, her webinar and in her research into the fifth house, which she has a bunch of webinars that you can buy on her website that cover each of the houses from the research she did into this a few years ago. She has this whole, whole um, thing where she traces how some of the Arabic translators of the Greek astrological texts in the medieval period may have conflated or seem to have conflated the Greek term Cairo, uh, which means uh, joy or rejoice, which is the term that was used to refer to the fifth house as being the place where Venus rejoices. They started translating this with an Arabic word that referred to joy and bliss and pleasure and enjoyment and lust and voluptuousness, uh, as well as another term that meant delight, amusement, love, and esteem. So the fifth house is the joy, the quote-unquote planetary of joy of Venus in the Hellenistic tradition starts gaining these additional meanings because they're focusing on the concept of the fifth house being the joy of Venus, even though 
it's like that that entire scheme in general was referred to as planetary joys. So Saturn was said to have its joy in the twelfth house, and the Sun was said to have its joy in the ninth house, and what have you. So already in the early Arabic authors, Demetra points out that there's this shift where, for example, Saul ibn Bishr, who lived around let's say around the year 800 CE and wrote in Arabic, says that the fifth uh, signifies or that it is a house of love and seeking a woman. Um, Abu Mashar, who lived in the ninth century and wrote in Arabic, said that the fifth is uh, desires and sexual intercourse. And Al-Kabisi, who wrote, who also lived around the ninth century, wrote that the fifth house signifies lust and voluptuousness. So eventually, um, this gets translated into Latin because what happened in the 12th century is that a bunch of the Europeans started translating a bunch of the Arabic astrological texts from previous centuries into Latin, and they started picking up some of these terms. So uh, Demetra points out that the translators chose to word, use the word delectio when they started translating things for the fifth house, which means delight, like sensual delight, amusement, esteem, love, and dear. So Demetra goes on saying that texts during this time period, the Latin texts from the 12th century forward, mention pleasures for the fifth house, which was then expanded to include things like food and drink, fine clothing, uh, gambling, but typically did not have any explicit mention of sex. Um, eventually, this moved into the Renaissance, and they're associating the fifth house with things like making merry, dancing, music, plays, alehouses, and other things like that, again, largely following like significations of Venus. And eventually, um, Demetra focuses in on this French astrologer who lived in the 16th century, Dario, who in his astrological text repeats using the term delectio for pleasures for the fifth house. However, she points out that in the French edition of his work, so he wrote it in Latin, but in the French French edition, it uses instead of the term delectio, it uses the word amours which when translated into English became love affairs. So through this, you can kind of tell even though this is partially trying to probably poorly convey some of Demetra's uh, detective work here in doing this kind of like archaeology of astrology and tracing the texts and how the texts were trans translated and transmitted into different languages and how sometimes the concepts would change when they were translated from one language to another, you can kind of tell that it's like heading in this specific direction. And then eventually, by the time you get to modern authors, Demetra notes that in Alan Leo, for example, in his 1904 book, How to Judge a Nativity, that there's a brief mention of children, but most of the interpretation of the fifth house, it gives things like, quote unquote, uh, he says, love affairs, courtships, affections that arise from emotions, seat of physical and magnetic attraction between sexes. Then there's CEO Carter in nineteen twenty five who says if the fifth house is afflicted, there's immorality, profligacy, looseness due to desire for pleasure. And finally in Max Heindel in nineteen twenty seven, there's love, courtship, licentiousness, legitimate and illegitimate attraction and intercourse between sexes prior to wedlock. So by the early 
modern tradition, we certainly have the fifth house as sort of firmly established as being associated with sex. And that's deriving from some earlier changes in the medieval and Renaissance traditions where it kept moving in that direction, evidently originally deriving from the fifth house as being associated with Venus and some of Venus's general significations, which had already been associated with like sex and love and other things like that. But it's interesting that there's a transition at some point in the early medieval tradition, because some of the early medieval authors are still often mentioning sex within the context of the seventh house. And it's really, to some extent, more of a later development that eventually it becomes more of a fifth house thing primarily. And the seventh house is, is largely almost excluded eventually by later in the tradition. So I think um, Lee Lehman actually has a note about this in her book, uh, her latest book on horary, where she points out that William Lilly in the 17th century doesn't mention the fifth uh, much or at all for relationships, but that some of his contemporaries do. So there's still even an issue in some later medieval and Renaissance authors where there's a tendency to focus more on the seventh rather than the fifth, but as the tradition progressed, that changed more and more so that the fifth became the primary house associated with sex. All right, so now we get to the modern period and the sort of like third phase of this, which is the eighth house. Basically, what happened is that astrology was revived in the early 20th century after kind of disappearing or falling out of favor for a couple of centuries after the 17th century. And one of the things that happened really early on is the conceptual structure of equating the signs and the houses using the formula that Aries is the first sign of the zodiac and therefore it's equivalent to the first house and Taurus is the second sign of the zodiac and therefore Taurus is associated with the second house. Um, that formula started being used much more frequently starting very early on in the in the early 20th century and then with increasing and increasing um, frequency, basically, the further and further you go into the 20th century until it became something that was like kind of used a little bit in the early 20th century to something that was like the core overarching conceptual premise for deriving almost all of the significations of the houses by the time you get to the later part of the 20th century. So this actually has an interesting history to it because Originally, it seems to have started in the, the Renaissance tradition during the, the later part of traditional astrology, especially in some of the medical texts where they started assigning body parts, especially within the context of horary, to the houses based on this rationale. So it's like they wanted to assign body parts to each of the houses, and so they used the structure of saying that, well, since Aries is the first sign and it represents the head, then that's equivalent to the first house, and therefore the the first house will represent the head as well. And then they said, since Taurus is the second sign and it represents the next body part down, starting from the head and working your way down the body, that Taurus is the second sign and represents the neck, which is this, the next section on the body, and therefore the second house represents the neck. And then they just kept working their way down the body until eventually you get to uh, the sign Scorpio, 
which is in the region, if you're just like laying the, the zodiac out on the human body, once you get to Scorpio, you're basically at the, the genital region. So they said Scorpio is the sign with the genitals and Scorpio is the eighth sign. So therefore, the eighth house should be associated with the genitals as well. And so this starts showing up in some Renaissance authors like uh, Schoner in Germany in the early, 20, early 16th century and in Lily, where he associates Scorpio as a co-significator of the eighth house for this purpose in the 17th century. So that's like the early origin. You have to understand one of the points I should make here to clarify is that this association of like the first house equals Aries and the second house equals Taurus wasn't really done much, if at all, prior to that time. Like if you go into the Hellenistic tradition and you look at how some of those early authors are deriving significations, they they never mention that scheme. And instead, they always resort to and, and invoke other conceptual models in order to generate the significations of the houses. Like sometimes those are astronomical models, like just the idea that the first house is associated with the rising of the planets of the horizon or the 10th house is planets culminating overhead. So sometimes they're astronomical models. Other times they are other conceptual models like the planetary joys scheme. But none of the early authors for like the first first thousand years or first fifteen hundred years of of Western astrology really mention or use this scheme of assigning the first sign of the zodiac with the first house and so on and so forth. It just starts very slowly in the Renaissance tradition with initially using it for making these assignments to parts of the body. But then what happens when the astrological tradition is revived in the early 20th century by guys like Alan Leo is that 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 um, notion of that connection was already being taken for granted. And then as a result of that, they started using it to generate new significations or to apply new significations to the houses that weren't necessarily there previously. So Demetra says, according to her research, that the first mention of sex in the context of the eighth house is actually by Alan Leo in the early 20th century. And she says that he has one short phrase in his book, The Key to Your Own Nativity in 1912, which says that the eighth house signifies that it, that it indicates sex tendencies is the phrase here. So that's a really, you know, humble origin. This is something that we take for granted today, or that a lot of modern astrologers, a lot of contemporary astrologers in the late 20th and early 21st century take for granted that sex is associated with the eighth house. But you have to realize that, like, this is again a concept and a shift or a change in the astrological tradition and in the conceptualization of the houses that started relatively recently. So I understand that when I say, you know, 1912, that doesn't sound terribly recently from uh, the perspective of like your lifetime or my lifetime, since we're talking about over a hundred years ago. But from if you're looking at it from the vantage point of like the entire astrological tradition, or or let's just say the past two thousand years of the astrological tradition, that's a relatively recent development, having that shift only take place about a hundred years ago to find the first you know, one of the first authors to mention sex in association with the twelfth, the eighth house, 
only happening a hundred years ago when you've had you know twenty centuries you've had two thousand years of the astrological tradition of authors and different astrologers using the concept of the houses up to that point that is a relatively recent development uh you know whether you endorse the association or not like that's completely aside i'm just saying from a historical perspective it's obviously something that happened more recently and i think that's something that people can generally generally agree on so part of the discussion i was going to have with demetra around this stage because she's done ton of a ton of really interesting work and interesting research surrounding this and how that association came to be emphasized and endorsed and how it also kind of made sense culturally at the time because of some cultural changes that were occurring so she mentions for example the idea of the the little death the le petite mort that was pop- a popular theme in late 19th century french literature um she mentions freud and the connections between sex and death being linked in like psychological disorders and other things like that and uh so on and so forth eventually pluto gets discovered uh, some astrologers very quickly start associating pluto with scorpio as as a new ruler of scorpio and some of the myths associated with pluto and persephone which involved demeter points out that pluto's main story is basically the story of the the rape of persephone and other things associated with that mythology potentially being sort of coming into play in terms of how astrologers would have started to perceive that association of pluto being associated with scorpio there were a, a sort of ton of other things like that but basically as the 20th century progressed and moved forward more and more the 8th house became the primary house that was associated with the concept of sex and the 5th house while it still retained that sort of meaning of being associated with children i feel like typically more often if you if you mention sex to a modern astrologer typically they'll immediately think of the 8th house rather than going to the the 5th house and certainly uh i don't think there's any like contemporary astrologers that typically would look to the 7th house at this point in time for sex just in terms of the modern astrological tradition so that is that sort of brings us to the present time and sort of completes this weird little survey of these three discrete traditions or three discrete approaches to what house the topic of sex should be assigned to based on different conceptual models you know one of those conceptual models of course the first one for assigning it to the 7th house is just the idea that as i mentioned a few times the idea of the ascendant being the rising place where the planets emerge and the seventh being the setting plant place where planets submerge and and form a union with the earth and therefore gets associated with both marriage and relationships and sexuality or sex uh, sexual union i should say so that's the conceptual premise for the seventh house association in the early hellenistic tradition as far as i can tell then additionally there's the the fifth house tradition where it largely seems to do with the association first the association of children with the fifth house which again i argued was because the fifth is the house that follows after the fourth and therefore represents the continuation of the family lineage but also and especially 
the conceptual premise underlying associating sex with the fifth house in the medieval and Renaissance traditions became because it was thought to be the house associated with Venus through the planetary joys scheme. And through Venus, some of those significations about love and pleasure and all of those other things came into play or started being applied to the fifth house. And then finally, in the, in modern times, we have the development of associating sex with the eighth house. And that seems to the, the sort of basic underlying conceptual or the core underlying conceptual premise of that seems to be the um, assignment of the signs of the zodiac to the body under the premise that Aries is the first sign and therefore is connected with or has some similarity to the first house. Taurus is the second sign and therefore it's the second house. And then by extension, Scorpio is associated with the genitals and therefore uh, Scorpio and the genitals are associated with the eighth house, which then by extension, you could then you know make that connection of sex with the eighth house. So those seem to be the the primary conceptual premises that are underlying those three approaches. And as we get towards the end of this, now that we have it all sort of laid out in front of us, it of course raises some questions. And there's there's a bunch of different sort of miscellaneous topics that we could talk about that I want to I want to touch on here really quickly. One one of them is the question that everybody, especially a lot of the modern astrologers that responded to my original thread about this, because I basically just wrote like a post on Facebook last fall, I think in September or so, that that said that sex was originally, from what I could tell, assigned to the seventh house, and then it moved to the fifth house, and then eventually it moved to the eighth house. And I don't think I I put any commentary or value judgment, but one of the things a lot of the modern astrologers would say, I think partially in defense of the the eighth house assignment, is they would say that they they would speculate that um, astrology is culturally relative, and that the assignment of sex to different houses or the assignment of any significations to any houses is always going to be partially a reflection of the culture of the day and the value system of the astrologers during that point in time. And the people that were saying this were partially saying that as a as a defense and saying that somehow the eighth house was more representative or more appropriate in modern times as a house to associate sex with, which was kind of a, you know, you could argue that either way. I think you could make the case that that's kind of a questionable assumption to make, or that you could just you could make an equally good case for any of those three houses based on those different conceptual structures. So. One of the things I'm trying to point out here, though, is that with this this sort of survey that I did that I just did of those three shifts, is that many astrologers often assume that changes like this are due to cultural shifts. However, and that the astrology always somehow represents the culture of his of its day, and to some extent this is true, but not always. Sometimes it seems to me like the shift is often more due to conceptual changes in the astrology of the time than it has to do with cultural changes. So, for example, we saw that the the, the growing emphasis on the planetary joys scheme in the medieval tradition seems to have pushed them more and more towards associating the fifth house with 
Venusian type significations. And the further you go away from the Hellenistic tradition and the further you go into the medieval tradition, it seems like the more and more they're emphasizing Venus and Venus's significations in connection with the fifth house because of that perceived conceptual connection due to the planetary joy scheme. And even though the planetary joy scheme existed in the earlier Hellenistic tradition, their discussions about the fifth house are often very brief. And they'll associate with children and they'll say that it signifies good fortune and that when planets are placed there, it indicates positive things in the life, but they otherwise don't go into a ton of detail about what that means specifically. And so when you look at some of the medieval authors, when they're giving these like long lists of significations for the fifth house, and it's clear that they're deriving them largely from Venus, uh, it's not clear to what extent that that's based on an earlier precedent versus just they're generating new significations for the house based on this underlying conceptual structure where they think that Venus is associated with the fifth house, and therefore you can borrow significations from Venus and apply to that sector of the chart. So what I'm pointing out here is that, again, sometimes it seems like the shift is due more to conceptual changes in the astrological tradition than cultural changes. So there's a greater emphasis on the joys in the medieval tradition. So Venus starts applying a bunch of its significations or a bunch of Venus significations start getting applied to the fifth house. And one of those is sex in the medieval tradition. And therefore there's that shift. Later, you have the the advent of the 12-letter alphabet or the like equation of Aries equals the first house and Taurus equals the second house, and that becoming like almost a new concept that's being taken for granted in the early 20th century. And then all of a sudden, you see the introduction of new significations to the houses based on that conceptual structure. So in that way, I would actually argue from like a historical standpoint as like a you know fancy fancying myself as a historian of astrology as I do from time to time I would argue that when I when I see things like that it makes me think that it's often more conceptual motivations that are primary in dictating things like the development of the significations of the houses that the the astrologers are much more concerned with you know generating them based on what they think the underlying conceptual structure is and then kind of elaborating on that structure just based on its its fundamental framework. And then later, sometimes the culture sort of gets adapted to that sort of later on or, or further on along in the process. But that primarily, initially, the astrologers are more concerned about what the conceptual structure is and then what they can do with that. And then later, sometimes they apply their own cultural or philosophical or, or religious or metaphysical sort of presumptions on top of that. So that's one thing I wanted to address. Another I wanted to address, and I'm not sure if this is worth mentioning, but one of the things I thought of when I was researching this at one point is that I I realized you could actually, sometimes if you understand the different structures, there may be multiple ways to generate the same significations for a single house but approaching it from a completely different direction than how it was originally approached. So the association of of sex to the eighth house is actually one that I think you could potentially make a conceptual argument for 
using the earlier Hellenistic rationales that had to do with the angular triads and the notion of cadent and succedent and angular being instrumental in determining the symbolic meaning of each of the houses. So I'm not fully advocating this because this isn't even something I use necessarily in my own work, but it's just something that I've played with because I just noticed that you could make the argument if one was so inclined. So here's the argument from taking some of those ancient rules and applying it to the eighth house. So remember I said it previously that the meaning of the four angles were probably developed first. So the rising representing the self, the setting or seventh house representing the other or the marriage partner, the tenth house representing action, the fourth house representing the home and living situation or what have you. So planets emerge at the ascendant, planets submerge at the descendant. They're at their most visible or prominent in the tenth, they're at their most hidden or private in the fourth. The fifth house, remember I argued that the fifth house probably originally came to signify children partially because it represents it's the succedent house that comes into play after the fourth house. So the fifth house represents the continuation of what is signified by the fourth house and what comes after that point. So therefore, if the fourth house represents parents, then the continuation of that, of, of the family lineage, would mean that the fifth house signifies children. So if that's true, if that reconstruction is true, and that was actually how the author of the Asclepius text originally developed the signification of children or originally assigned the signification of children to the fifth house. And, and I don't know for sure because we it, it's kind of speculation. It's a, it's a reconstruction or a historical reconstruction on my part, but I, I think it's a pretty relatively solid speculation or solid argument. That being, that being said, so if it was true though that that's how that signification was originally developed, um, it's kind of interesting because if you applied that same conceptual structure to the seventh house, then you end up at kind of an interesting, interesting place. So if the seventh house, which is an angular house, represents relationships and represents marriage symbolically based on the, the other things that we've talked about previously, where the seventh house is where the planets unite and come together into the earth, if the seventh house, if we take for granted that it represents relationships and marriage specifically, then the eighth house would be the succedent house that follows after the seventh house. So the eighth house, as we all know, is a succedent house, and it's the succedent house that comes after the seventh house. So that would mean symbolically at the, at the most fundamental level, one of the most fundamental things you could say about the eighth house is that it should signify that which comes after one gets into a relationship or that which comes after uh, when one gets married. And, you know, obviously one of the, the statements you could make uh, about that that would be typical for most marriages or most relationships is that sex is one of the things that comes subsequent to getting in a relationship or to getting into a marriage with somebody. So therefore, you using that argument, using part of that original conceptual structure, you could potentially, through an alternate route, come to assigning the signification of sex to the eighth house using a completely different conceptual approach than the one that it originally 
sort of originally developed that, which is the eighth house being equated to Scorpio and Scorpio being equated to the genitals and what have you. So I'm just throwing this out there as like an interesting thing that I thought of from a, a conceptual standpoint. And I'm not necessarily trying to endorse or promote this association, but I just kind of, at this stage at least, but I just kind of find it interesting conceptually. And the general point that I want to make is just that I think we should try to have specific astronomical or symbolic reasons for associating specific significations with each of the houses. So whatever you think each house signifies, just try to do your best to figure out a good symbolic or astronomical reason why that should be the case rather than just you know taking it for granted that somehow signifies something and that it's always signified that or you know that it signifies that just because somebody says so try to do your best to know for each signification the specific symbolic or astronomical reason why something should signify that that would be my what i would urge everybody uh, just because I think we'll be on better ground conceptually in terms of using this stuff and continuing to develop it, and also continuing to develop new significations in the future as the need arises or as necessary. Just because, you know, once you get to the core underlying conceptual or like archetypal meaning of a house, then it becomes easier to understand what other meanings might be applied to that house when the circumstances call for it or or when the circumstances allow for it. All right, so the last point that I wanted to make about this topic is one of the final questions is, you know, so what's the answer? Uh, what is the answer to the original question, which I think I'm going to title this episode, which is what house rules sex in astrology? So that raises another question that we have to answer first, which is, is the answer that there is only really one actual house for this topic, or conversely, can there be multiple houses for the same topic? So that's that's the open question right now at this point. Can there be multiple houses for the same topic in astrology? Or another way of putting that, maybe another way of looking at it is, can they be different variations of this topic? So, you know, this gets a little bit tricky because in some branches of astrology, like horary, you kind of need to have like a specific single house uh, associated with a topic so that you know what house to focus on or what house to look for, depending on what question is being asked. Since in horary astrology, you typically focus on looking to see if there's an applying aspect between the ruler of the ascendant and the ruler of whatever house matches the topic that was inquired about and if those two planets are applying to an exact aspect the answer is affirmative and if those two planets are separating then the answer is negative so you you kind of need because of that conceptual structure in horary oftentimes there to be one house however you know that's in horary and in natal astrology, when you're working with birth charts and people's lives, um, sometimes natal, in natal work, things can be a bit more nuanced. And here, I think it's worth noting that it's notable that in some of the early Hellenistic authors, they sometimes did not restrict themselves to just one house, but sometimes they 
allowed for multiple houses signifying the same topic. So, for example, I talked about earlier children being assigned to both the fifth house as well as the tenth house, as one example. But even when you look at, like when Vadius Valens talks about the significations of the houses, he associates friendship with the eleventh house, but he also associates it with the third house. So even topics like that were not necessarily as restricted to single specific houses in ancient times or in some traditions as we have them today. So perhaps part of the answer here is, you know, one of the questions we should, I think, ask ourselves at this stage in the tradition as we're reviving all these ancient traditions and we're seeing some of this conflict where you have a conflict between different traditions assigning something like sex to different houses. One of the questions is, you know, perhaps there doesn't need to be just one house per topic, you know, especially in people's lives. And when you're dealing with natal astrology, if there's different houses that can have similar or equal right to have some symbolic connection with that topic, maybe it doesn't need to be restricted to one, or maybe there can be different variations that are relevant. So that's one potential way to answer this question. And I'm not trying to necessarily push it in one direction or another, although I have seen certain things in my own practice, for example, where I feel more settled about other things. Um, One example I'll give is that while I do think the eighth house is associated with death and can be associated with death, especially when it's activated by transits or when it's prominent in the natal chart and i have you know a bunch of examples i think in my perfections lecture which i gave a few episodes back i used the example of like the kennedys and how prominent the 8th house was in some of their charts and how it when it was activated or when the rulers of the 8th house were activated by annual perfections using that time lord technique how sometimes um death would occur as an event in their lives, especially in connection with the siblings because it was connected to the third house. So my point here is that while I think the eighth house does have some connection with death, it's not the only house that has some connection with death. Traditionally in Hellenistic astrology, the fourth house also is connected with death and the end of life and uh, because it's the place underneath the earth uh, that's the most hidden and that's kind of in some broader symbolic sense where you go in a sense, or at least where your body goes after you die. Now, my point there is that using timing techniques, one of the things that I was always really struck by, and I talk about this a lot, I think in my full like nine-hour lecture on annual perfections, is I was always surprised at how often death would come up as a major topic sometimes when the fourth house was activated. And I was surprised at that just coming at it and learning Hellenistic astrology as a modern astrologer, just because I otherwise didn't typically expect to see death as a typical like fourth house or or a potential fourth house signification. But when I actually attempted to investigate it using timing techniques, I was surprised, despite my skepticism, that it often did come up when issues surrounding death or mortality were in play in the in the person's life, whether it was their own death or somebody else's. So I mentioned that partially as an example that I don't think that you always have to restrict one topic to just one house. And there can be 
the same topic applied to multiple houses, or there can be variations of the topic uh, applied to different houses. Like, you know, Demetra's argument was partially that perhaps, you know, the seventh house association of sex was only in a legalistic sense to the to the extent that it was necessary in some cultures to, you know, verify the marriage or ratify the marriage. Um, I don't know that I would go versus the fifth house as being like sex for pleasure. Um, or some like a modern astrologer might argue that the eighth house is sex for transformation. I'm not trying to go that far, or at least I'm not trying to make to to nail this down into specific statements at this stage because I don't necessarily want people like following that and emulating or or quoting me on this as an authority on this stage because I feel like I'm still exploring this topic. But I just want to put that out there as a potential potential way that this could be resolved in terms of keeping our options open for what the possibilities might be. And one of the possibilities might be multiple houses having some relationship to this topic. Now, what those houses end up being and what the, the context is, is perhaps still an open question, but that's one of the potential solutions. One of the ways, of course, we can test this is looking at natal charts, but I would also suggest timing techniques like annual perfections because they do a good job of activating specific houses. And then you can kind of look to see what topics do arise in a person's life during those those time periods. So yeah, that is, I think, I think there was there was one other point I was going to mention in terms of those options, but I, I would just like to sort of conclude what I'm saying here and conclude this. Oh yeah, the the final thing is just the Indian tradition actually has a whole other assignments for sex in some instances, one of which includes the twelfth house. So, and this is based on entirely different conceptual rationales. So that's another whole area to explore as well, where in this discussion I've kept my my focus limited entirely to the Western astrological tradition from like the Greco-Roman period through the medieval and Renaissance eras in, in Europe through to modern times, largely in the West. But in the Indian tradition, they have their own sort of sometimes unique ideas about the assignment of sex to different houses and their rationales for that. So that's a whole different thing because in some instances that's drawing on completely foreign conceptual rationales that don't exist in the Western tradition. So they have certain certain standards or certain things for the houses, certain conceptual structures, just like, you know, we have in the medieval tradition and Hellenistic tradition, they had the planetary joys scheme. And that informed some of the significations of the houses. In the Indian tradition, they have other schemes like that that therefore cause some of their significations to be slightly different. But nonetheless, exploring some of those and seeing if they have any interesting rationales or seeing if the Indian astrologers have resolved this, you know, in their tradition in interesting or unique ways might be a worthwhile path uh, of investigation to see if that could be helpful at all in our tradition. All right. So I think that brings us to the end of this discussion and the end of this episode then. You know, I don't know what the answer to the question is. The answer is that there's at least there's three houses at least there are potential houses that may be associated with sex in astrology, and you could make a pretty good case for uh, all three of them, depending on whether you think that specific conceptual structure, that specific conceptual premise, makes sense. So, 
you know, traditional astrologers like like medieval and Renaissance astrologers might object and say that they don't agree with the conceptual premise of the twelve letter alphabet and assigning Scorpio to the eighth house, and therefore they reject that association based on that premise. Modern astrologers might say that they don't agree with the the Hellenistic and the medieval uh, conceptual premise of the planetary joys scheme, and that if you take that away, therefore you you have no reason they might argue for assigning sex to the fifth house. There's all sorts of different ways that I'm sure you could approach this depending on what your tradition is and what your conceptual structure is that you either accept or reject. The purpose of this episode was not necessarily coming to a final conclusion about this where I'm going to try to advocate one thing or another, but instead just to outline for all of you the nature of the issue and and give you basically outline the full issue in front of you and the issue that we have to wrestle with and hopefully to spark some both spark some discussion about that specific topic but more importantly just to show you the importance of this type of research why it's important to do it how it should be done and also to give you some better insight into how the significations of the houses in general like overall throughout the astrological tradition how those came about in different eras, and that hopefully will give you some different tools to work with as you decide which ones you like or which ones you don't like and what makes sense to you so that you can develop your own sort of unique approach to astrology with a full sort of background knowledge on how other astrologers have done it in the past. So if I've if I've accomplished that, then I think I've accomplished the the primary thing that I set out to do with this episode. All right, so more information on this topic. If you want to find out more information about this topic, be sure to go back and listen to some of the other episodes of the Astrology Podcast that I've mentioned at various points. For more information about my research, especially in terms of the Hellenistic tradition and the first thousand years, basically, of the, the use of the houses and, and which Hellenistic astrologers used which significations and what have you, um, you can check out my book, which is titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, which is available on Amazon and fine, fine bookstores everywhere, mainly just Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble occasionally. And you can also check out my online course on Hellenistic Astrology, which you can find out more information about at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And in there, I have some lengthy like 10-hour lectures where I really go into not just reviewing how different Hellenistic authors talk about the significations of the houses, but I try to go into the conceptual structure and I also try to give some example charts in order to show you how certain houses work out when they show up prominently in a person's chart. So from a Hellenistic perspective, I, I primarily end up focusing on like the seventh house and maybe to a lesser extent, the fifth house occasionally for sex. And I think I do show some example charts related to that topic to show how it works out. So anyway, you can check out that course for more information from a Hellenistic perspective. Additionally, I'd really strongly recommend checking out Demetra's retreat on the houses, which is going to take place this September. So it's a this is actually the third Hellenistic intensive that she's done where once a year over the past three years, she's she's um, basically taken a week where she's had a, a group, a relatively small group of people all fly out to Portland and they, they do this intensive on a specific topic in ancient astrology. And the fact that she's doing one 
sort of in person where you can go there and hang out with her and sort of take part in and hear her research at this stage in her career after having a, a long career as a modern astrologer and then a long career as a Hellenistic astrologer, a long and distinguished career. And now that she's merging some of her insights from you know having that background in both the modern and the ancient traditions, uh, I think you know having a chance to go out there to spend a week with her going over a topic like this and going into much more depth than I was able to in this episode is a, a real opportunity and a real treat. So I'd recommend that people check it out. You can find out more information about that on her website, which is demetra-george.com, or just do a Google search for Demetra George. And on her homepage, you fi- should find a link to find out more information about the Hellenistic Astrology Retreat on the houses this year. All right, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So I, th- I hope you found it uh, useful and interesting, or at least followed along. If you have any questions, just be sure to let me know in the comments section for this episode on theastrologypodcast.com. As always, if you like the episode, please give it a good rating on iTunes. If you uh, enjoy the podcast and you want to support my work and the work that I'm doing in trying to you know, in some instances have interviews or, or do things like that, like the last couple of episodes I did, or in other instances, uh, like today, fail to fail to do interviews with amazing astrologers like Demetra. Uh, but nonetheless, I still I still try to do as many interviews as I can. If you want to support that work, then consider becoming a patron of the Astrology Podcast on Patreon, and you'll get access to some nice bonus stuff like early access to new episodes exclusive episodes like the Electional Astrology Podcast or the Casual Astrology Podcast, as well as like giveaways and sometimes like live access to live episodes as I'm recording them and other things like that. So you can find out more information about that if you go to, I think it's like the astrologypodcast.com slash subscribe, and then just click the link to follow it to my page on Patreon for more information. All right. I think that's it for this episode. So thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.